Hi, I'm Fred Burton, and I'm very excited to host this special episode as part of our Protective Intelligence Honors Program, a program we developed at the Center for Protective Intelligence to celebrate the top pioneers and thought leaders in physical security. We are recognizing professionals who have driven new shifts in novel practices and are contributing to influencing and advancing the physical security and protection industry. Today, I'm speaking with one of our honorees, Adam Cambridge, Manager of Enterprise Risk Intelligence at MITRE, to discuss his views on leadership, changes in the physical security space, and more. For Adam's complete bio, please visit our website, protectiveintelligencehonors.com. Adam, welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. This is, uh, I'm a big fan of the podcast. Oh, why, thank you. We really are pleased uh, to be able to do this, and my job's easy. The folks behind the scenes do all the heavy lifting. Adam, how did you get into the security industry? I think like most of us, it just sort of worked out that way. You know, it's something I reflect on occasionally. You know, I ask myself often, like, how did I get here? Um, really, it started as an undergrad and double major in psychology and philosophy. Um, and I worked at a mental hospital in college. I was exposed to some really interesting cases in abnormal psychology, primarily with children, which was um, really hard to do, uh, to be honest about it, but, but also with uh, juveniles and some adults. really fascinated me. It's like, how do people do things that really just are counter to our human nature, like act violently, betray their country as a spy, things like that? At the same time, um, there's this really tragic incident uh, where this guy in my school drove home. He murdered his whole family, burned the house down and everything. It's like really just got my interest. I mean, it was something that was just so outside the norm. There's something that happens in a small town, Maine. But it was something that was just driving me to understand it. Like, how could it happen? Um, it interested me also. He shared a family name, not my last name, and we weren't related. But um, I was looking at some photos of him online, and he we shared the same apartment. And not at the same time, obviously. but. He moved in after me. It was just really surreal. I was seeing him partying like in the same living room as I was, knowing what ultimately unfolded. It was just really fascinating to me. So from there, I got really into books by John Douglas, um, and he is like Journey into Darkness and others, and like really got into the weeds of these cases of intended violence. And I just got this idea in my head: I wanted to be a criminal profiler. Um, so I quit the football team at college. I took a leave of absence. And I joined the Army, became a counterintelligence special agent. I was thinking that the Army would give me training, investigative experience, a security clearance. It gave me that, but much more. And it really set the direction of my life, leading to where I am today. You know, Adam, that's a great story. I think uh, these kinds of incidents that happen in our youth, I had a similar event happen to me with uh, the murder of an Israeli diplomat when I was um, a teenager in my neighborhood. And I eventually wrote a book about that, but um, these events can be very transformative. That's uh, a fascinating story about your background and what led you into this space. Now, you have a huge job at MITRE. Can you explain a little bit about what you do there? Absolutely. Um, I'll take one step back first, just, just to note that I started as an Army reservist. And I was able to bounce between school and active duty and work and active duty. 
And that was really accelerated my professional development. I mean, the Army brought me to Iraq, where I engaged in counterintelligence, human intelligence operations, and I got kind of hooked on that life, the operational world, you know, for, for the next 12 or so years in various roles as an intel officer for DOD. Um, and it was that experience that brought me to MITRE. You know, the CI experience, the experience managing security risk, you know, dynamic environments. And MITRE is such a great place. I mean, I've been fortunate to work under visionary leaders. You know, they encourage continuous learning. I get to work on projects that just really outside of my daily duties, but get me exposed to things, some things that are very interesting. One of those is um, I got into researching foreign-born disinformation campaigns and you know, the corrosive effect they have on domestic dialogue. And at MITRE, we began seeing an uptick in suspicious incidents and concerning communications. And you know, so I kind of rediscovered this early passion for protective intelligence. And from there, we started to grow our program at MITRE. And we grew from you know small team, really more counterintelligence, insider threat focused. We started including things like program protection. And, and now we, we realized there was a gap. Um, in an analytical capability uh, to cover all of our mission areas. And so that's my job, is to manage our intelligence program that feeds our security risk management program. And so my role is, is to manage these various mission areas, protective intelligence, counterintelligence, business risk intelligence, and so on, um, to, to better inform our leaders and decision makers on risk so they can make better decisions. Yeah, that's a big job. Adam, tell me a little bit about what is the disinformation kill chain? Oh, so we, I was involved in research a couple of years ago um, and we're trying to, and this is 2018, and disinformation certainly wasn't new, uh, but it was on the forefront of Americans' mind. And I got thrown into this, this great project um, that was a public-private analytical um, experience. And we're, we're trying to understand disinformation and trying to understand how it works uh, in, in modern age, just coming out of the events in 2015, 2016. We're having a hard time understanding the flow of how an operation works. And I'm coming from you know, the CI, the human intelligence world, and there's a certain operational method in tradecraft that's used. So I wanted to try to understand how sophisticated campaigns work. And so I put that together, you know, for us, the kill chain, um, for us to understand, you know, in an ideal way, if you're an adversary, how you would run a a sophisticated disinformation campaign. And we used uh, cyber kill chain and other kill chain models um, as a a framework uh, to communicate that. Yeah, that's fascinating and must have been a a tremendous project to work on. And I applaud you for those efforts in that space. Let's talk a little bit about how has a failure or an apparent failure in your work experience or life in general set you up for later success? Oh, man, there's been a lot of them. It hit me with that one. <laughs> there's been a few whammies over the years. Uh, that's for we sure. Like to, we like to ask <laughs> a hard question. Or let me put it this way. Do you have a favorite failure of yours? I mean, Lord knows I could name off about 50. I do. Uh, you know, fortunately, some of them I'm not allowed to talk about. Makes it easier for me. But uh, there were two. I mean, early on, I, I learned two big lessons when I was in Iraq. 
and kind of conflicting lessons, but I was you know, 22 years old and they say what they give you a lot of responsibility when you're 22 years old in a combat environment. Uh, the first one, talk less and listen more. You know, early in my tour, um, I had this, this operation. It was the first thing I was involved in, developed key intelligence on an attack that killed um, an ODA commander and, and one of the Iraqi counterparts is my first op. So excited to share the intel with the ODA team leader. Yeah, we wanted to capture the bad guys. And I ended up talking over this guy the entire meeting. It was a total one-way street, not a productive exchange. I mean, this guy was still, he was still grieving the loss of his teammate. I had a total lack of awareness, no empathy on my part. And my teammate pulled me aside afterwards and was like, yo, why did you talk over him the whole time? It took me a long time to rebuild that credibility with that team, but fortunately it was a lesson I learned early. And there was another failure, and, and this one's tougher to talk about, but the first source I cultivated in Iraq was killed. And I mean, maybe I should stop talking <laughs> because it uh, sounds like I'm a terrible intelligence officer, but the events leading up to his death were set in motion by a superior officer. He made decisions that he was not authorized to make, and I did not agree with, uh, but he was, the, he was in charge. And he accelerated the pace of our op to the detriment of the source's safety. I felt powerless to stop it. And I had serious misgivings about it. But these failures and the lessons that I derived from them are twofold. And they stick with me today. Talk less and listen more, like I said. But in other words, practice the art of active listening and emotional intelligence. And two, stand firm when it comes to your moral principles. Yeah, very prudent advice. and. Uh... I appreciate you sharing that with uh, our listeners. I, I get it. I understand. Adam, what motto do you live by? Remember to empathize. And in this profession, we spend a lot of time looking at bad behavior. It's really easy to label everyone suspected of bad behavior as a bad person. It's often not the case. It's usually much more complicated than that. We use structured analytic techniques in our business and other methods to try to counter our biases and tendencies. But one thing we always need to do is empathize with those that we interact with, including the subjects of our investigations. To paraphrase what someone much smarter than me said, when we work on an active case, you know, what might be another day at the office for us is perhaps the worst day in the life of a person we're trying to protect or the, the person that is the suspect of our investigation. So remember to empathize is a big one for me. Yeah, well said, well said. When you start looking at this space that we're in that um, has certainly changed in the time I've been in it, Adam, when when I was first in the government working with three by five index cards and typewriters, um, we literally did not have a computer. And you look at your career and the future of this business, where do you see the biggest changes to take place in physical security over the next, let's say, one to three years? That's a great question. I you know, I laugh at the index card. You know, I came up in the world of computers, but the, the the people who trained me at CI school, you know, they grew up on typewriters. So I had the I was fortunate enough to, you know, to kind of be a foot in that world of the old school way, um, while learning on technology, although it was still old and not very useful at the time. Uh, but in the private sector. In particular, one imperative for us is this idea of not being a cost center. You know, we, we need to position our security programs to increase the likelihood, on one hand, of success for our organization, you know, our most important business initiatives, 
by managing security risk across the enterprise. And that's hard to do. So successful organizations need to appropriately balance risk without taking risk that is unnecessary. So how can we be responsible for taking risks in the business environment without understanding them? That's where security comes in. And doing it right is hard. Uh, It's a team sport, requires a lot of data, synchronized activities. And this idea of a cyber physical convergence we're seeing today when everything is networked, including the cars we drive, means a lot of shared risk. And this requires a mindset change. And technology is a big part of it, but not the only one. So the changes I, I hope or expect to see in the next few years is really a better integration of physical security with other disciplines. And the use of technology and industry-tested best practices to break down silos, to enable more synchronized, multidisciplinary approaches to protecting our assets, especially our people, is really important, I think, moving forward. And when I talk about managing security risk, I'm talking about nearly any kind of risk that could imperil the success of an organization, whether it's the private sector or not. And this means we're talking about employee retention, talent recruitment, the threat of foreign malign influence, cyber intrusions, the whole thing, potentially violent individuals. There's an interplay between these risks that necessitates looking at risk drivers in a more holistic way. So organizations like us, we're trying to foster this environment of speed and agility and risk-taking. And, you know, because we want to drive faster innovation, be more competitive, but you can't responsibly have a risk-taking culture without being risk-informed. And that's an opportunity, I think, for security in general, including physical security in the next couple of years, moving from this compliance asset protection cost center approach to a framework that's really, you know, you're delivering risk insights and risk management recommendations to stakeholders in a way that improves business decision making. In the government, we called this providing decision advantage to policymakers. In the private sector, it's more about avoiding foreseeable and manageable risks. Very thoughtful answer, Adam. I really appreciate that. Looking back over your career, what would you tell a young Adam first getting into the corporate security space? Wow, that's a good one. There are so many things that, you know, I look back and I think I could do different. But at the end of the day, I think I'm where I need to be. So it's keeping an open mind. Um, Don't force anything. You know, if if a if a decision like a new job opportunity, a new position, if it doesn't feel right, don't force it. Um, because when you when you reflect on a career, the decisions in, on on how you ended up where you are don't often make sense. You know, it's not a clear path, and because there's not a clear path, focus on the things that make you happy, and can help you continue to grow and expand and not be stagnant. Um, so I think that's that's just good advice for anyone, particularly early in their career. Remain flexible, continue to do things that make you that that you enjoy and that allow you to get smarter, get better, um, and continue to develop. Adam, we thank you for being on the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast with us today. Thank you very much. This has been great. I appreciate the opportunity. Our pleasure. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.ai/center. 
Again, that's ontic.ai slash center. It was produced by A.J. McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smoke and Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontech.ai or visit ontech.ai slash center for more information. And thanks for listening.